The reading is taken from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, verse 1 to 26. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, Why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them any time you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. <coughs> On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, The teacher asks, Where is my guest room, where I may eat my, the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus has told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened. And one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he, drank, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drank it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives.
So if you take that first section that was read, and I'll lead us in a few thoughts on that. We have a section in verses 1 to 26 full of people planning for Jesus to die. Uh, There are the secret plotters in verse 1 and verse 2. They have their secret scheme and they have a problem. They are afraid of Jesus, afraid of the crowd. They cannot kill him. And then in verse 10 and 11, we meet the solution. Um, Sad, tragic, human solution. Judas offers to betray him. And to meditate Christianly is to use your imagination, your mind, in the service of your Christian growth with a Bible open in front of you. So to use imagination on these secret planets. You can imagine it maybe in dark tones. They're meeting in secret. It's like a a thriller. How will we kill him? And you can see they think they are so clever. We're told in verse 11, they are delighted when Judas comes. And to meditate is to think your way into the gaps in the story so that we feel the surprises of what Mark has for us. So they are delighted. They think they are so clever. How does that cast Jesus? What role is he cast in when we look at it from the point of view of the secret plotters? This is Jesus, the helpless victim, isn't it? Jesus, who cluelessly walks into Jerusalem each day, unaware that these clever men in their secret room are planning his death, unaware that one of his 12 closest friends has been to see them, is being paid to cleverly hand him over. He's walking into a trap. And that is most people's view of the event we are remembering today. We have a naive, helpless victim. We have a a death that is a, a waste of a life, is a shame. And we have a cast of powerful human beings who have cleverly trapped this naive young man. And in meditating, maybe just think one step further. Think, what if that was true? It's the picture most people believe about Jesus, about the cross. What if it was true? What if we had a powerless Jesus? What if the cross was a failure? And a waste? And what if human beings were in control? What if we were on this planet on our own, uh, with our schemes and our money and our power to work things out? But Mark wants us to know they are not the only people planning on that day. There's not just one plan to kill Jesus, there are two, because Jesus is also planning to die. And verses 3 to 9 are a a cut scene. 
inside their plot. The main story is their plot, if you like, and Mark takes us to this uh, dinner party. It was one of the passages we were looking at with the young people's service earlier today. It's a contrast. It, it looks, it feels, it smells very different. Um, and in the middle, not this uh, secret planning, you have this very public, slightly crazy individual. And she um, pours out her house deposit on the head of Jesus. That sort of sum of money, what you'd save to buy a house in West London, uh, she pours out onto his head. And Jesus says she has done something beautiful. Everyone else is angry with her. Jesus says, you've done something beautiful because you've done it for me. There is a man who thinks that what is happening this week in Jerusalem is all about him and is worth a house deposit. But he also says, because she has prepared me for my burial. Uh, He tells us she will be eternally and globally famous because she came that day and prepared him for his burial. Sometimes to meditate is to think of the equivalent. What would be the cognitive equivalent? What would be the modern equivalent of what she does that day? So imagine a a dinner party. You can imagine yourself if you want or imagine Jesus. And during the dinner party, there is a man in a a dark suit who arrives and uh, he has a measuring tape and he's beginning to measure you as you sit at the dinner party. Then he calls his colleagues and they come with hammer and nails and saw and they begin manufacturing something, something approximately six foot long. And there is nice wood and there is cloth to go inside. And there are bits of brass that are are screwed onto it. Until as you eat, um, finally assembled is your coffin. And she is embalming him as they sit at dinner in Bethany outside Jerusalem. And he says this is beautiful. And you will be eternally, globally famous because you have done this to me. With two days to go, with the um, the clever plotters still not quite sure how they're going to do it, Jesus says, please can I put my coffin on now? Jesus is planning to die. And he times it precisely. Um, Other details in the story, Judas must not know where they're going to eat the Passover. Uh, Only two disciples will know. Why? Because he must die when he is ready. He must die so that he can be the lamb, the Passover lamb. He knows who's going to betray him. He says, the one I dip the bread in with gives it to Judas. None of this surprises Jesus. So that, verse 1, verse 12, he can be the Passover lamb. And uh, when we pause, there'll be lots you can think about there if you know the Old Testament story. Uh, The story of the lamb, the story of the slaves, the story of being bought, the story of escaping from Egypt, the story of being free. 
But in the words that Jesus uses, the focus is on a broken body, on blood poured out for many, and on blood that is the blood of the covenant. So Jesus, the beginning of this week, he puts on his coffin, and then he enacts a meal where he is the lamb which is an invitation to climb inside his coffin. Um, The Passover, you'll know the story maybe, is where they put the blood on the doorposts, the blood of the lamb, which says that the safety is inside, inside the death, inside the blood, there is safety. Paint the blood on the door. There's a death in every house. Either the child of the house or the lamb. And Jesus at this meal is saying, that is me, a ransom. The Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, Like some glorious prison escape where you climb inside a coffin as if dead. And the coffin travels outside the prison. And then is opened and you are free. Climb inside the death of Jesus. Climb inside his coffin. And escape to freedom. So I said we'd think about the three elements in that verse all the way through Jesus. What a king he is. Calm. And collected. In charge of even this event, this planning of his death. The ransom, well, it is beautiful. It is a gospel for the whole world. It is about people climbing inside his death that they would be free. And then for us, for the many, and just let me give you one more contrast to think about. There are two people in this story who are involved with money and the death of Jesus. There is a woman who pours out an astonishing amount of money because of the death of Jesus, because she loves him extravagantly. And there is a man, Judas, who arranges his death in exchange for a sum of money. And Mark is asking us which of those reactions is us as we see our king and we see his death. So we'll take some time now to pray and to read with Mark open. Our second reading continues Mark's gospel account in chapter 14. So Mark's Gospel, chapter 14, and we're starting at verse 27. You will all fall away, Jesus told them. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes tonight, 
before the cock crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Judas said Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. So I said we're going to track Jesus, the cross, and us. Let's start with us in what we've just heard, because this is the section where we disappear from view. 
Uh, Jesus begins with his friends, and then there are three, and then there are none. Um, Jesus in control throughout, still, he tells them, you will all fall away. Truly I tell you, today, yes, tonight. Uh, He knows, but to them this is unthinkable. Verse 29, I don't think Peter is lying. Um, I think Peter cannot imagine a world where he will not stand with Jesus, no matter what comes. Even if all fall away, I will not. Uh, He is good, he is loyal. Verse 31, even if I have to die with you. Um, He knows what this might cost, um, and he is committed. So, Jesus, maybe deliberately, I don't know, um, let's see how you do. Let's take you to a garden. Let's not make it as hard as it might be straight away. Um, Let's see if you can cope with a prayer meeting. Um, Maybe Peter would have preferred uh, a fight, uh, an arrest, a revolution. And they go to the garden, verse 33, 34. Jesus is so sad. He began to be deeply distressed, not just deeply distressed, also troubled his soul. It is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And like that, he makes one request of his three best friends. Again, to meditate is to use your mind to think over the story, to use your imagination. Have you ever had the daydream where you thought, if only I could have been there? Time machine, uh, something, how that would have worked. At least then Jesus would have known he had one friend with him. Uh, maybe you could have been at the cross with a, you know, a cloak covering your modern hairstyle. Um, give Jesus a, a thumbs up. Uh, someone's still with you. Am I, are you, uh, a better man than Peter, James, or John? No. Uh, These are the best disciples, the closest disciples, the best examples of humanity that you could find. So how do they do at the prayer meeting? Verse 37, he comes back and finds them asleep. Uh, It was one hour of watching too much, Peter. And he describes them, 38, as willing but weak. Um, And that is humanity in a nutshell, isn't it? Um, Willing but weak. Sorry, that is the best of humanity in a nutshell. It doesn't describe the chief priests or Judas, but it describes us, the, the many who Jesus died for. Willing to stay with Jesus, willing to do our bit, but weak. So he comes back the second time and they have nothing to say because they are asleep again. And he comes back the third time. Are you still sleeping and resting? Which means that verse 50 is no surprise when we get there. 
everyone deserted him and fled. And even verse 51 and 52 uh, is no surprise. 51 and 52 is a shame choice. Uh, There is very, very great shame in being publicly exposed. And so as the arresting soldier puts a hand on this man's garment, he has a choice between uh, the shame of running home naked and exposed or the shame of standing with Jesus. What does humanity do? What do we do? We say, give me anything but Jesus. Any shame, any cost, if I can just get away from him. I read this passage once in a Bible study with um, some students. Anna was a um, theatre production student, a stage stage management student. And she was the person you always want in your Bible study because she would say exactly what she was feeling and thinking. Uh, as they arrived in her head. And she said, I am so angry with those disciples. They couldn't be with their friend for one hour and pray with him. And then she covered her face. And that is us. That is the people for whom Jesus died. then how about Jesus? If that is us, how about Jesus? And it all centers here on what he says to his father. Uh, Verse 35, unusually, Mark tells us what he's going to say. Verse 36, he says it. Verse 39, we're reminded that he prayed the same thing. And 41, we assume he did. Hours and hours in the darkness, praying the same thing. The whole night, Jesus spent asking not to die. Is there, Father, another way? Is there another way? It's quite different, isn't it? We, I think often we fast forward the story to the resurrection and we say, really, this was not very bad for Jesus because he knew uh, it all came right in the end. Uh, It's just a bit of an adventure for him. So again, meditation is to look at what is actually here, to think about it and to reflect on it. So Jesus did not want to die. Uh, What does that tell us? It tells us that there was no other way. He asks his father if it were possible that this hour might pass from him. Verse 36, everything is possible for you. And there are versions of Christianity, aren't there, without the brutal realities of the cross. And those versions of Christianity, they are saying that the loving heavenly father, faced with his wonderful son, And a world in which he did not need to do this, did not need to die. The father said, shall we do it anyway? For some other reason. Despite his passionate prayers through hour after hour. And there is no other way. Because of our sin, because of God's justice. 
because of God's anger, because of the reality of hell. There is no other way. Jesus asked for it, and there was no other way. Um, Second reflection on this, just think what it means that Jesus did not want to die for me. Isn't that a strange, astonishing thing to say? I think often we arrive at the cross entitled. It's his job, isn't it? Come on, Jesus, die for me. I've done my job this week and and generated some sin. Now, Jesus, will you do your job and forgive me and die for me? Um, We need to be very careful. Um, This is not all that Jesus wanted. Um, The eternal son had been planning this death uh, since before the world existed. Uh, This is his settled plan. He's wearing his coffin. He knows where he is going. This is his choice. Um, But it was my sin that made it necessary. It was his love for me. His love for his father that made him choose this anyway. Uh, It wasn't something I was entitled to. And then um, think in terms of what he prays. Did you notice that it is the Lord's prayer that kills him? Uh, It's an astonishing thing, the Lord's prayer. We pray it without thinking. Um, You know, they pray it in the Houses of Parliament as if it was just a nice thing to say, when really it is radical and revolutionary. It's the Lord's Prayer that kills him. He says, Father, not what I will, but what you will. Your will be done. Uh, Not that there are two competing wills here, and Jesus against his father, or Jesus the victim. Um, But the wonder of this decision that he makes, he will trust his father. He will follow the plan of the father and the son to death on a cross in obedience. That is our Lord and master. That is the kind of man he is. That's us, that's Jesus. And then the cross, what is the cross? Well, it is his hour. It is his cup, he says. Um, A cup is a brilliant image, isn't it? You take something in a cup and you take it inside yourself. Uh, With the Old Testament open, this is God's anger. And so he drinks into himself God's anger at the sin of the kind of people we see here that we are. And the Lord's Supper is deliberately surrounded by... Uh, Twelve men, one of whom is a betrayer, and twelve men, all of whom will deny me. Who does Jesus want to sit and eat with? Who does he say, my blood, uh, that you would be my people? Well, it is those kind of people, betrayers and deniers, because he takes the cup and takes inside himself God's anger. And the consequence, let me give you one last detail before I uh, allow you to pray and to think about this. Uh, When Peter is not listening, he says, after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. 
And it's not an accident because the angel at the tomb says it again. Go and tell Simon. See you in Galilee. Just think what Galilee represents for these failures. These lost and broken men. Galilee is where it all started. Capernaum and Cana. And miracles and fishing. And choosing the twelve who will be my messengers. Go out two by two. The new tribes of Israel. Jesus sees failures, tells them what they will do, prays, is there another way, and then goes to the cross so that he can see them in Galilee as forgiven failures, his chosen disciples. Shall we pray? Our next reading uh, follows on from the last one. In Mark 14, and we start reading at verse 53. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days will build another not made with hands. Yet even then their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him struck him with their fists and said, Prophesy! And the guards took him and beat him. While Jesus, while Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You are also with that Nazarene, Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said and went out into the entrance. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around them, this fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a while, those standing near to Peter, near said to Peter, surely you are one of them, you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. 
Immediately the cock crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the cock crows twice, you will have disowned me three times. And he broke down and wept. We said in the last half hour, sometimes we can feel entitled to the death of Jesus. Um, I've also met other people who feel angry. Um, I think perhaps there's something very English, though I'm sure it's uh, human and right around the world, that um, our instinct is to reach for our wallets. Um, Could I not pay that debt myself? Uh, Could I not help myself out of this problem that I'm in? So again, let's start with us. And now we're just tracking Peter. Um, The only one left, the best of all, verse 54, is remarkable. Um, He is still at least in um, touching distance. Goes into the courtyard of the high priest, the place of danger. Uh, The best of all human beings is there on site. Um, Let's see how he does. And there are two trials here. I think as Mark presents it, there is the one formal trial that Jesus is going through where he is led in by um, a group of guards armed with weapons, swords and clubs. He is brought up before the high priest. Um, I don't know which uh, you think is the most terrifying barrister that you know, Um, but here is the high priest with the ceremony and the robes and the training and the history, standing as his accuser. You have the whole Sanhedrin arranged behind. He's on a charge of death against prepared witnesses, willing to say whatever might assist in getting him convicted, regardless of the truth. Uh, He's exposed and in public Uh, He is condemned, and then his um, humiliation and suffering and death begins. Compare that to the other trial in the story. It takes place around a fireplace, and then in a doorway, um, you have Peter facing a servant girl. Maybe she was a particularly terrifying servant girl, but she's still just one uh, on her own. Twice, He has easy access to escape. He um, gets up and wanders to the entrance. No one stops him. Uh, The final conversation happens. Uh, He could have run out into the darkness very easily. The charge against him is just that he was with Jesus. The evidence is his accent. He's able to deny it, and it works. And... Uh, In the end, the big consequence for him is that a cockerel uh, crows at him and he leaves and weeps. So imagine a human being who really thinks that he could save himself, thinks he could reach into his wallet and pay off this debt somehow um, on their own. Are we better at this than Peter? Brave, outspoken, 
the best friend, loves Jesus very much. And he couldn't do one hour with the servant girl. He says, I, I, I don't know. Then he says, I don't know him. Didn't know the man. And then he curses. And through this chapter, maybe you, you could do a sort of graph of Jesus and humanity. And maybe at the beginning we think Jesus is uh, better than us, but, but maybe only, only this much. And then as the trial of Jesus goes on, you think, no, this is someone truly remarkable. His, his side of it moves up. And then actually you watch us and you see us move down and down and down and down. Guilty, weak, and incapable. I think that's what Peter is here for here. Um, with love. I think we identify with Peter strongly. We're sympathetic to him. Uh, we see ourselves in him. But he is here to teach us that we really do need Jesus to do this for us. Do you believe that thoroughly? deeply, that you need Jesus to do this for you. Again, part of meditation could be to examine yourself. There's lots of material here in Mark 14, Mark 15. Uh, examine yourself, your thoughts, your expectations. Do you really believe thoroughly that you need Jesus to do this for you? Because you, I, are incapable. So the cross, um, it is by Jesus for us. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom on behalf of many would be a better or fuller translation. He does this instead of me, for me, because I cannot. And then Jesus, come to Jesus in this section. Uh, again, he is not the pathetic, feeble victim of popular imagination. He is not pushed here, driven here. He is not uh, incapable and incompetent. Jesus here, he is brave and capable, and dignified, and in control throughout. And the contrast to him is the, the Sanhedrin, who are flapping, aren't they? Throughout this section, flapping and incompetent. Uh, you can imagine maybe what is going on backstage as they're trying to run this show trial to generate the outcome they decided years ago they decided the outcome. So they've been looking for witnesses, we're told. And we know they're willing to pay. And they have many witnesses in a queue backstage. Bring them on one by one. But they did not agree. Even when they're allowed to make up whatever they want, they cannot agree. Should be the Once the judge has decided to make it up, should be the easiest thing in the world, but they can't get it done. They can't get a conviction. In the end, Jesus has to help them. 
you see that? They ask the question over the page on, uh, in verse 61. Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? It's not a very clever barrister's trap, that one, is it? Um, it's obviously a question that if you say yes, you get a guilty verdict. All he has to do is to go on with the silence that he's been doing all the way through. Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? And he doesn't just say yes. Uh, he uses the divine name, I am, and he tells them what it means. I am the one who will be on the clouds at the right hand of the mighty one. Uh, this is a trial that Jesus is in control of. He intends to be found guilty. They are totally, totally at a loss. And he helps them out. But more than that, uh, this isn't just his trial. I had a uh, very, very brief um, career in music. Uh, as they didn't know that, um, as a roadie for one week. I was a roadie for one week for, um, I think you'd call him a soft rock musician, Australian Christian musician, uh, sort of Christian Jason Donovan. Not sure the kind of music Michael would allow in the Good Friday um, service. But he had one song that was Who's on Trial about this event. And I remember him kind of singing it, shouting it into the microphone, who's on trial? Is it Jesus? Or is it these leaders who are trying so hard to convict him? And Jesus at the trial says, you will see me again. What is verse 62? Uh, it is the truth. It is a verdict. It is a threat. It's a plea, isn't it? Before it's too late. Will you not change your mind? They will see Jesus again at God's right hand on the clouds as their judge. And they think he's blaspheming, whereas really it's this is thou shalt not bear false witness. He's telling them the truth. You have got God's in the dock today. God's king, the Messiah, the son of man, in the dock today. And unlike every other ruler, uh, the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, but the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve every organization that you and I are part of. There are the badges of rank and of status. But here is the judge of the universe, and he says, I will serve you and die for you. And that's as it ends, as he predicted, they spit on him. And they take his eyes away so they can play a stupid game of prophesy. When actually we know that he has prophesied every single thing that is happening. He said they'd spit on him. They do. He said he'd be betrayed. They do. He said they'd beat him. They do. This is the one who we will meet on the day when he comes on the cloud. At the right hand of the Father to judge the whole world. 
This is what he went through. This is who he is. And we will see him. So again, as we turn to pray, maybe an imagination exercise, a question. And what will you say to him on that day when you see him? What will you say? We continue Mark's account of those days. We've now reached chapter 15. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so. Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom of the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who'd committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, They took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. If you've joined us at Halfway, as it were, we're working our way through Mark's accounts of Jesus' arrest and death. And we're following through Jesus' own words about his death. In Mark's Gospel, he says, Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Chapter 15 begins with his second betrayal, uh, the second handing over. One of his own disciples handed him over to the Jewish authorities, and then the Jewish authorities handed him over to the Gentiles. And uh, I think maybe we read this and feel relief 
at last the Roman authorities are involved, but we should feel horror. Their king handed into the power of the Gentiles. And in fact, as the story goes on, despite second chances, the the crowd that the chief priest was so afraid of because the crowd loved Jesus so much, the crowd is then crying for his death. So Jesus, let's start with Jesus this time. What do we need to think about uh, with Jesus? You cannot miss, I think, the repeated message from Pilate about Jesus. With irony in it, this is the official verdict of Roman law. Jesus is found guilty of being the king. King verse 2, king verse 9, king verse 12, king verse 18, and more into the rest of chapter 15. And uh, he is then dressed in a king costume. Irony, and they mock him, but it is the right answer. This is the king. But as well as king, Pilate finds him innocent. Verse 3, he hears the accusations and uh, sees through them. Verse 10, he understands this is self-interest, not evidence. And verse 14, he's not very willing to be public, Pilate, about what he thinks, but um, verse 14, why, what crime has he committed? There is the verdict of the emperor's representative in Jerusalem. Here is a man who has committed no crime. We've seen in the last hour that that doesn't describe us. Uh, Not only are we not a king, but we're not capable, not powerful, not able to do anything. But we've also seen that we deserve, we are guilty, uh, weakness and betrayal and guilt. And Pilate is saying more than he knows, because here in front of him is the only innocent human being in world history. Truly startling to think of someone who is entirely innocent in motive and thought and word and deed through the entirety of a human life. It is not more human to be flawed and sinful. Jesus is the human being in this account. Jesus is the human being the way that uh, we were intended to be. And he is entirely righteous, entirely good, kind and brave and honest throughout this account. This is the innocent king. But Pilate is convinced that he can get Jesus released, which is actually a threat. If you think about it, Jesus plans to be killed. Uh, So a Roman governor who wants him released is a threat. And so we have this um, extraordinary piece of theatre. Pilate is not willing just to release Jesus and take the blame for it. And in this extraordinary piece of theatre, we get an extraordinary picture of what the cross achieves for us. 
So to come now to the cross, we have two men, two men in custody, and you might like to meditate to think, though maybe not for very long, about which one is more like you. Barabbas, we're told, is a rebel and a murderer. So he fits in neatly next to Judas and the chief priests and the authorities. Um, Barabbas, he is the one in custody who deserves to be there. And then there is Jesus, who is the king and is innocent. And they have a custom that one person can be released at the feast. And obviously, obviously that will be the one who is innocent and who is loved, the one the crowd was shouting for only five days earlier. I doubt it enters into Barabbas's head that they're going to choose him. So I think we could meditate usefully. Again, with our imagination, we've said to meditate is to apply our imagination and our thoughts to the text. We could meditate on verse 15 and imagine it as it happens. So the doors open to Barabbas's cell and uh, maybe light shines in for the first time in a long time. And they take the chains off him and the soldiers stand back and stand aside and gesture to the door. Maybe imagine there is a single corridor, we're not told, but a single corridor where one man walks in one direction and the other one walks back. Barabbas going out, Jesus coming in, and their eyes meet as they cross in the corridor. What's it mean for Jesus to be the ransom for many? It's a, an idea so simple, but so wonderful, that I think many of us struggle to believe it. Um, it is a simple swap. Barabbas walks out, and Jesus walks in. And all of the details around it are designed to help us understand that. You have a guilty person and an innocent person. You know which way it should go, which one should leave. And they switch places, they swap. So Barabbas, watch him as he walks through the city, out through the gates, and begins to climb the hill uh, outside as Jesus is taken and flogged. And then spends this brutal uh, hour, hours, with the soldiers. And the irony is that everything the soldiers do to him is real. Even as they think they are playing a game and mocking him. They give him a robe and a crown and he is a king. Uh, it's all pain. It's a crown that hurts. It's astonishing. I don't know who came up with the idea. Which soldier? A crown that hurts because it is the crown of a king who wants people like Barabbas to go free. It's the crown he wears because he wants people like Barabbas to go free. And it's real because Jesus is being punished 
before the things that Barabbas did. The punching and the mocking and the flogging is real and deserved, just not by him, but they have swapped. So Barabbas gets to the top of the hill, and again, maybe, maybe from there he can see And he looks back at Jesus being uh, beaten and mocked. And Barabbas looks around himself as a free man. Again, in meditating, we might like to think how it would feel to be Barabbas. Meditation can include our emotions. How would it feel to be Barabbas? How do we feel about Jesus? That he did this for us. And then to think about us. I think what Mark does. Is he holds up Barabbas. And he says go on then. Do you think you are worse than him? Maybe you you want to make a list. Uh, Meditation can involve a piece of paper and a pen. I said right at the beginning. You are allowed to write in these books. You're taking these home. And make make a list of all the reasons why Jesus should not swap places with you. And then compare that to Barabbas. Mark has been very deliberate, I think. Uh, Are you worse than a murderous rebel under the death sentence, a man like Barabbas? Is there a reason why this swap would not, should not work for you. If it works for Barabbas, then it works for me, and it works for you. And who knows what Barabbas was thinking as he left, but with Mark's gospel open fully, we know that we walk away with what Jesus had even as he walks into what we had. So he walks into guilt and punishment, and we walk away with his inheritance, the king of the Jews, and with his innocence, the good, perfect, brave, kind, truthful man that we meet in this account. We walk away with that as Jesus heads to the cross. So again, let's take some time with these verses to pray. We're still reading from Mark chapter 15. I'm going to read from verse 21. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. 
It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. So it's our shortest reading this afternoon, but it is the moment when they crucify our Lord. And we've said each time, Jesus, us, and the cross. So Jesus, um, really just remind us, if you've been here, they um, pin the truth about him above him. Ironically, this is the king. Uh, This is the king who they are crucifying. This is Jesus who consistently does what he said he would do. They offer him wine and he says no. Uh, He said he will not drink again until he drinks it anew in his father's kingdom. And he won't drink myrrh because he is here to carry the punishment. He is here to suffer and it cannot be numbed. Uh, And we're told that they divided his clothes and cast lots to see what each would get. And uh, for those who know, that's a detail from the Old Testament. And again, a reminder that this is the king who is in control. Even when he looks weakest, even as they crucify him, think of the degree of control needed to write down in advance by hundreds of years what they will do with your clothes on the day that you are arrested, condemned, beaten, and executed. The the guards who think they are controlling you, think they're profiting from your death, they are doing the thing you said they would do hundreds of years before. So Jesus, he is the king, he really is, and he is in control. And us, again, I think we are there in the story as uh, the king is mocked. In Mark's gospel, right from chapter 3, we're forced to see there are only two places you can stand in the end. You either stand with Jesus or you must kill him. It's the choice that the chief priests and the leaders face. It's the choice the whole people face in the city that week. And so either you are following Jesus or you're with them and crucifying him. But mainly I think in this section we're here to think about the ransom. 
to think about what the cross means and how it works. And again, Mark is using irony because he will use the chief priests to teach us. They will tell us what the cross means. They're going to explain the cross to you. So verse 30, come down from the cross and save yourself. Imagine it in Jesus' head. Well, shall I? Shall I come down from the cross and save myself? He could. Uh, Remember the prayer in Gethsemane? Um, He wants to. He is facing the pain of God's wrath. They can only see the physical pain that he's facing. Um, And they say, come down. Come down and save yourself. Verse 32, it gets worse. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. If you really are the king, prove it to us. Uh, Come down off the cross. You cannot be a king and be on a cross. Uh, That is a profoundly straightforward, orthodox, faithful thing to say from the Old Testament. The king is the one who rules and wins. The one on the cross is the one who is cursed. You cannot be a king on the cross. Come down. And if you do, if you do, well, then we will believe in you. Such lies. Such lies. Verse 31 assumes they know that he can do miracles. They know he's saved other people. They know he's raised the dead. They're not in any doubt who this is. They've seen all of those and decided to crucify him. Come down from the cross. Save yourself. Well, he could. He could. It wouldn't make them believe. But he could. But what he cannot do is both of the options in verse 31. That is what he cannot do. He saved others, but he cannot save himself. And which do they want him to do? Because he cannot do both. He must either save others, us, or save himself. If you remember the garden, is there any other way? Answer, no. There is no other way to save sinful human beings except through the death of Jesus. In fact, it's worse than that. All of his saving of the others, all of the temporary healings, The temporary resuscitations of dead bodies, all the temporary resolvings of what was wrong in people's lives, unless he refuses to save himself, all of that would be for nothing in the end. It is only by not saving himself that he can save us. And he has to do that hour after hour, minute after minute, not saving himself again and again and again, facing the wrath of God, deliberately not saving himself. Be so easy 
Uh, There's a line in one of the other Gospels about, do you not think my father would send a legion of angels to rescue me? Uh, He could um, disintegrate the atoms of the cross and the nails and the soldiers. He could step down so easily. And so he keeps himself there, minute by minute by minute, so that he could save us. And wonderfully, even as they put the choice to him, save yourself, save others, even he saves some of them by refusing their choice. The, um, I don't know if it is the best verse in the book of Acts, it's my favourite verse in the book of Acts, um, is the one where we are told, Acts 6 verse 7, that a large number of priests even, became obedient to the faith. Here are his assembled enemies, the chief priests. Here are they crying for his death. Here are they giving him this impossible choice. Save yourself or save others. And he refuses because by staying there, he saves even some of them. A wonderful verse of hope for the religious and the proud that some of those who said this to him turn and trust him later. And so verse 32 actually redefines what the king of Israel is. He saves others as a servant. The son of man came not to be served, but to serve. If you came down, we believe you were a king. No, no. Because he stayed there, I trust him as my king. It's in fact the only kind of king really you could trust who has proved that he is for us, that he will give his life for us. It's the only rescue that meets our need. It's the only king that you could trust. And there is just a hint in the passage of what trust in him looks like. So we meet a man from Cyrene who is forced to carry the cross. Just the first hint, Jesus said, uh, whoever would come after me must take up their cross and follow. Just the hint that hopeless failures once saved by this king who stayed on the cross for us, could be trusted and followed after Galilee, even for Peter, even for Simon from Cyrene. So they say, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. So as we pray, do you see and do you believe? The next reading is from Mark 15, verse 33. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
When some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. It was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learnt from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. In our final reading there, every detail is pregnant with meaning, and nearly every detail is capable of two possible meanings. I think that's deliberate for Mark. So to meditate, again, is to pay deliberate attention to the choices the author's giving us, and to think, to work out, which do I think is right? So take the darkness. It becomes dark at midday. It's Passover, so there is no possible uh, planetary eclipse explanation. This is miraculous darkness. This is the anger of God uh, from the Old Testament. But who is he angry with? Uh, Is he angry with the murderers of his son? As we, complicit, all, uh, join in with the worst thing the human race ever did, that would make sense, wouldn't it? Or is he, shockingly, angry with Jesus, or expressing his anger on Jesus? Because that's where verse 34 takes us. Jesus speaks, and he uh, says some words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is he complaining? Sounds like it, doesn't it? The last words of a broken and desperate man. Or is he describing what is happening to him? My God has forsaken me. He is facing the anger of God, forsaken by God for us. He has drunk the cup. He has swapped places with us. He's taking my death. But then verse 34 again, is he, um, well, is he speaking or is he quoting? 
And you may know this is Psalm 22. One more place where the divine Jesus wrote in advance every detail of what he would go through. Psalm 22 would be worth reading this afternoon or tomorrow. And even as they act against him, they follow a script that he wrote. I had a friend who was not inclined to believe the Bible. And one of his reasons was how closely the events in the Gospels follow the script written in the Old Testament. And I said, well, yeah, it's clear, isn't it? It's scripted. And he said, you see, so Mark's made it up to make it fit. Well, yeah, maybe. Or maybe the one that rules the universe wrote the script that they then follow in detail as he dies the Psalm 22 death. So here's another choice. Is verse 34 a sad thing to say or a happy thing to say? One says, it's a stupid question. Why have you forsaken me? It's a sad thing to say. But he's quoting, and he's quoting from a psalm that maybe we only ever read a couple of verses from. But in the psalm, the main character dies, clearly dies, killed by the God who has forsaken him. But the final third of the psalm is happy, is about the one who has been killed, um, standing up and praising God and doing things and fulfilling his vows and telling people to trust God. Jesus is quoting a psalm about the vindication of the one who dies. Then verse 35, verse 36, they think it might be the end of the world, is it? Elijah coming to rescue Jesus? No. It is the other option. It is the turning point at the center of the world. As the Son of God is not saved, as he bears the wrath that we deserved. Then 38 and 39. Uh, we have the tearing of the curtain in the temple. Again, it's a, a cut scene. Uh, the camera has no business being in the temple at all. We're here to watch a crucifixion outside of the city. And it is an extraordinary scene. The temple was as wide as a hand, and it is torn from top to bottom. So torn by God from heaven. And what does that mean? Does this mean the destruction of the temple? Or does it mean the opening of a way inside? Well, destruction of the temple would make sense. We've twice in our readings this afternoon heard um, Jesus' words quoted against him that he would destroy this temple. And there would be reasons, wouldn't there? Jesus warned them in his last week that when they kill him, the owner of the vineyard will come and take the vineyard from you. Is it that or is it an opening up? Uh, is it access? The curtain was a good protective barrier. It said you can relate to God but not come so close that your sin and his wrath would destroy you. And I think on that choice, it is both. 
It is access because he has, uh, well, don't say destroyed, say replaced. It is access because Jesus has replaced the temple with his own self. Destroy this temple and I will build it again in three days. Um, I think probably we don't care enough about the temple because we don't see how wonderful it was, how big it was. A place for God to be with his people permanently where they could go and meet him. And yet here now at the turning point of the world, it is replaced with something better. And so who is it that Mark presents as the first one through that curtain to benefit from what Jesus has done. Again, like we have with Barabbas, we have a very, very surprising person here. We have the man who oversaw the execution of God's son. A Gentile, a soldier, the man who killed Jesus. So again, you can compare him to yourself. Uh, Yes, we've seen we're complicit, we're guilty, we're weak, we're failing, we're involved in this death. But this man actually oversaw it, gave the orders to put the nails in. And the door is open now for him. No question, no doubt, because a swap has happened. Only innocent people can come through the temple to meet with God. Only the entirely innocent, with nothing to fear from the anger of God, only they can come in. And head of the queue is the Gentile centurion who killed God's son because a swap has taken place. And he believes, he says, uh, surely this man was the son of God. Which, if you know Mark, you'll know is what was there in 1 verse 1. The gospel about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Which makes him the second great believer in Mark. It's Peter and this centurion. Peter says, you are the Messiah. The centurion says, you are the Son of God. And he is welcomed in. And for today, our account closes. And we're waiting now for two days. Uh, It's very final. Jesus is dead. Then he's a body. Then he's a corpse. He is put in a tomb. And the stone closes him in. Uh, But it is a pregnant pause. Because we have a member of the council who killed him. Becoming bold and waiting for the kingdom of God. And you have three brave women round the cross and two brave women who go and see where he was buried. Why do we need to know that? Uh, Well, come back on Sunday uh, as we find out, uh, as we get ready to go to Galilee. Again, a short moment to pause and to pray. I'm going to close with words that they say to the Lord Jesus uh, in Revelation chapter 5, in the courts of his father. 
You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our gods and they will reign on the earth. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. Amen.